This podcast is brought to you by The City Church in Mississauga, Ontario. For more information, please visit thecitychurch.ca. We hope you are encouraged by this message from Dr. Coulter. Okay, let's pray. Father, we thank you tonight for the privilege of studying your precious, holy written word. We thank you, Lord, for Jesus and the Holy Spirit. We thank you for redemption, which includes healing. I thank you, Lord, for the anointing of the Holy Spirit that makes preaching and teaching easy and easy to listen to. We give you praise tonight that we are enlightened, and I thank you, the Holy Spirit unfolds and reveals his word to us. We give you praise, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, there was, a, there was a, actually a great question that came in, but I don't see the gentleman here that asked it, but I'll just read it to you. But I have no intentions of answering it because it would take me forever to answer it. But it's rather interesting. <clears throat> what of modern medicine? If we can rely on the Spirit of God in us to heal us, is there any need for doctors, medicine, etc.? If I break my leg and go to the hospital, is then... Is that then not a sign or an act of unbelief? I don't trust God to heal me. So I'll go to the ER. Next paragraph. What of Paul? He prayed to have a thorn in the flesh removed, but God would not. I don't know the nuances of the Greek or Hebrew. That would have helped him at play. But I expect a thorn in the flesh would be equate to a disability of some sort. Wrong. If God will heal, why was Paul not healed in that case? Does it not imply that in the secondary gifts God is willing, eager to give, the final decision remains with him? Next, healing promise in the Old Testament, corporate or individual. Uh, Exodus 15, 26, probably others. Again, I don't know the nuance of the Hebrew, but I read the passage that as a promise to all Israel, especially its leaders, that if they as a community obey God, the land will remain free of various pestilences and plagues brought on Egypt. Never understood that as a promise to any individual Israelite. I guess that my old perspective, God cares more for my soul, my body maybe not so much. I have understood it as a promise that will hold to modern communities and countries. Another item you could possibly address somewhere I heard, I can't recall where, church, maybe, Christian radio, I'm not sure, that the nuances of sickness in James 5.14 was heart sick or despair, mental, spiritual, rather than physical sickness. I'm guessing your understanding of the original language does not lead to the same conclusion. He's right on that. Do you see any validity to that understanding? No, I don't. Is it... Removing physical sickness from the understanding of James 5.14, an attempt to counter the thinking, if I ask for healing, he must heal me, I, a subset of word of faith, prosperity, theology. Well, I'll make a couple of comments. First of all, I asked Pastor Brent to answer it. Now, remember that Pastor Brent taught on healing for four years uh, every Tuesday and has great grasp of the subject. So I asked him about that question, and he went on for about a half an hour on the answer. And actually, I asked him to come back last week to uh, answer the question, which he was going to do, but the person that asked the question is not here. So 
I'm not going to spend a whole lot of time. Uh, I would say about the first part is that healing, natural healing and spiritual healing actually work together. You don't have a, you're not against divine healing if you go to the OR. Actually, hospitals don't claim to heal. They claim to help the body heal itself. So that would be one answer there. It's not against faith to go to the OR. Uh, secondly, Paul's thorn in the flesh is not sickness and disease. There's nowhere in the scriptures that translates thorn in the flesh as a disease. It translates as a personality. In the Old Testament, you see thorns in the flesh were nations that were coming against Israel. In Paul's case, it says that uh, thorn in the flesh was a messenger of Satan that came to buffet him. Buffet means to harass and disturb him because of the revelation that he was given about redemption. And then the other issue um, was that about, about divine healing as the will of God, that it doesn't, God is interested in our spirit and our soul, but not so much our body. What we have to understand is that one, one has to look at the character of God uh, in both the Old Testament and the New Testament. And we find out in that character of God that he was interested in our body, soul, and spirit. So much interested in our body that he made our bodies the temple of the Holy Spirit. So we look into the, both the Old and New Testament about divine healing and find out that actually Jesus provided this for us on the cross, but in his own ministry never refused to pray for anybody for healing. And as a matter of fact, he said, if you see me, you see the Father. So we, we, we get from that, that God's character is that he wants his people healed. And then he, he, the inference of that uh, question is that some people don't get healed. And so the, the philosophy part of the question is some people don't get healed, therefore God doesn't want to heal everybody. Uh, that is not true because it's the same thing with salvation. Just because somebody doesn't get saved doesn't mean that God doesn't want them saved because God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes have everlasting life. So his will is that everybody gets saved, but everybody doesn't uh, unless you're a Calvinist, which I'm not. And most thinking theologians today uh, do not believe in double predestination, some destined to be saved, some destined to be lost. So it doesn't mean that if somebody doesn't get healed, it's not the idea that God doesn't want them healed. And there is various and a hundred reasons why some people don't get healed. But it's not that God doesn't want them healed. So we will talk about some of those things that causes uh, people to be sick and so on. There's a hundred reasons that you could go for. But remember, the character of God says he wants everybody saved and everybody healed. Is everybody gets saved? No, but that doesn't mean it's not God's will to save them. Does everybody get healed? No, but it doesn't mean that it's not God's will to heal them. Okay, that's the quick answer. If Pastor Brent was here, he'd be talking till the bell rang. All right, let's go to the section now uh, on doubt caused... Um, some of the issues that causes sickness and disease. 
I think it's under the heading of um, enemies of faith regarding healing. The, the, issue that, the issue that we've tried to create in this class is that God's character is that he's a healer and that we, of necessity, must believe that he is, according to Hebrews, that he is and that he's a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. So faith is a component necessary to be healed most of the time. However, God does sometimes initiate healing, just like he initiated Paul the Apostle's salvation, for example, on the, uh, on the road to Damascus. So God can initiate a healing. He can heal a sinner and has done many times. And God can do what he, what he wants to do. But generally speaking, it takes faith to believe. So some of the enemies of healing is... Doubt caused by listening to the devil's lies or listening to the lies of society, listening to uh, lies that our own minds will conjure up, listening to negative things that have... have, uh, conspired in your own life and it really started off it really started off in in um, in the book of Genesis right at the beginning Genesis chapter 3 verses 1 through 7 now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of that of the field that the Lord God had made he said to the woman did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden. So what what the devil was trying to do there is disqualify the word of God to cause it, bring it into question. He said to the woman, did God actually say this? You shall not eat of any tree in the garden. And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden Neither shall you touch it, lest you die. Well, now, God didn't say you couldn't touch it, but she added that little bit there, lest you die. The serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise... She took of its fruit and ate, and she also gave some to her husband, who was with her, her, and he ate. What are we going to do with you women, anyway? (laughs) Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made them loincloths. So always the issue is to, uh, to disavow the correctness of the word of God. Did God actually say this? Is God really a healer? And so the same issue came uh, to Jesus uh, in Matthew chapter 4. Matthew chapter 4, 3 and 4. You remember that Jesus 
was in the wilderness being tempted of the devil. And the tempter came and said to him, if you are the son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But he answered, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. So Jesus was quoting Deuteronomy 8, verse 3 there. Deuteronomy 8, verse 3 would not be in your notes. Have to uh, look it up. Matthew 4, verses 5 through 7. Then the devil took him to the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, you, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down for it is written. He will command his angels concerning you and on their hands they will bear you up lest you strike your foot against the stone. Jesus said to him, again it is written, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. So Jesus was there quoting Deuteronomy 6, 16. <clears throat> Matthew 4, 8 to 10. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, all these I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, be gone, Satan, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. Deuteronomy 6, 13 and 14, they're what Jesus was quoting. So what did Jesus do here in this case to deal with these negative thoughts that were coming to him? Jesus used the word of God. He took the word and defeated Satan at every turn. Now it says later on in Matthew that uh, the devil waited for a better time or a better season. Uh, a better season to come. But you know, in Jesus' life, there was no better season for the devil. Uh, every time it happened, Jesus was always using and quoting the Bible, quoting the Old Testament. So it was the word of God that defeated the negative thoughts that were coming into his head. So if the devil can, if the devil can get you to think that the scripture is not divinely inspired, for example, then he can get you, you see. This is one of the major issues that we faced in the Reformation period in the 16th century until scholarship sort of recognized that, uh, that the foundation of our faith is the truth of the word of God. Now, we are commanded, actually, in, in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 27, to give no opportunity to the devil. Give no opportunity to lies that are inspired by evil. The devil might not be talking to you personally, but you can be sure that any negative thought regarding the word of God or regarding God himself would be coming from him either directly or indirectly. James chapter 4, verse 7. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. So how did Jesus resist? Did he say just, I resist you, Satan? Well, you can do that, but you need the word of God to resist the devil. Now, this is why some people are at a disadvantage in their Christian life. 
because they never cracked the Bible from one Sunday to the next. They wouldn't know how to find Zechariah if you paid them. And some of you probably can't either. Want to have a little test? No, I don't. Matthew 4, 4, but he answered, it is written. But he answered, it is written. But he answered, it is written. Jesus resisted the negative thoughts with the word of God. So these steps, steps one and two, are really, step two would be acting uh, by, by using the word of God. That's acting on the word and confessing your healing, right? And then, and then it is, uh, the next step would be receiving your healing. So you resist the thoughts, you take the word of God, you confess that by his stripes I am healed, and then receive. Now remember what I told you before? Where do you receive healing first? In your spirit, right? And then as you receive it in your spirit, because God is a spirit, so you receive it down in your spirit, and then it manifests out in your body, and this is why healing usually is gradual and not instant. Now, for some people, it's instant. Your experience on Sunday, was it instant? Or was it over a period of three or four days? Yeah, so it's like the lepers, when they were healed, and the, the ten lepers, when they were healed, it says they were healed as they went. The uh, Bible says, lay hands on the sick and they shall recover. So you receive that healing in your spirit first, and then it manifests out in your body. Uh, Matthew, uh, let's see, Mark eleven twenty four. Whatsoever things you desire when you pray, believe that you receive them, and then you shall have them. In other words, you receive the healing before the manifestation. And that's difficult for some people. All right, the next, the next uh, little problem is having the wrong confession. Wa- have to watch your mouth. Jesus said this in Mark eleven twenty three and 24. Truly I say to you, whoever says to this mountain or this problem or this issue or this sickness be taken up and thrown into the sea and does not doubt in his heart. And the word heart and spirit are used interchangeably in the New Testament. We're not talking about the blood pump here. Does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says will come to pass, it will be done for him. Therefore, I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it and it will be yours. So this is watching what you say. Because words go down, if you say them long enough, they, get, they go down in your spirit. And if you keep talking about sickness and disease and whatever else, you build sickness and disease into your consciousness. You, you become a sick person. And over the years, in, you know, 55 years in the ministry, 
I've dealt with some people that their, their whole countenance and their whole, their whole conversation is about their sickness and disease. And so they build it into their, their soul realm. They build it into their, their, um, their, their spirits. And it, it takes forever to try to get that out of them. Do not confess your symptoms. You're not, I'm not telling you to deny your symptoms. That would be stupid. But don't necessarily confess. Confess something else. Confess by the stripes of Jesus, according to Isaiah and according to Matthew and according to 1 Peter 2.24, by the stripes of Jesus, I am healed. Why is confession so important? Hebrews chapter 3, verse 1 tells us. Therefore, holy brothers, you who share in a heavenly calling, consider Jesus the apostle and high priest of our confession. The apostle and high, high priest of our confession. Whatever you want to confess, that's according to the word of God. Every, every day of the world, when I'm making my own prayers in relationship with the Lord, I confess my salvation. That he died on the cross and I received him. I, I believe I receive your your salvation afresh today. I talk about that to him. Why is confession important? Because Jesus is the high priest of your confession. This means what? That because he's the high priest, he's willing and responsible of every one of God's promises that we steadfastly confess with our mouths and believe in our heart. He's our apostle and high priest. What does the high priest do in the Old Testament? Sees to it that what God has said comes to pass. So he's the high priest of our confession in the new covenant. So I'm going to say this again. This means that he will faithfully fulfill his priestly responsibilities of every one of God's promises, for instance, healing, that we steadfastly confess with our mouths and believe in our heart. This has to exclude doubt. There has to be an elimination of doubt. Jesus said in John 6:63, "It is the spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit, and they are life." Now Mary, for example, uh, the mother of Jesus, she said an interesting thing. The angel came and said thus and so to her, which was an impossibility, right? Oh, in the face of impossibilities, she said, Luke one thirty-eight, Behold, I am a servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed because he said, I'm going to bring a word to you right from God. The verse before that says, for nothing will be impossible with God. Nothing will be impossible with God. Nothing that you find in God's word as a promise is impossible to God. Nothing. And I can remember using that in the old building when everything was impossible. 
the people, the people in front. And the interesting thing was, when we first came to the building, everybody that God sent to the building as a member didn't have a job. Literally, for the first 20 people, they were, they'd come up and ask me to pray for a job for them. They didn't have any money. So I couldn't ask them for any money. So, I, so the Lord gave me an idea. Instead of putting the pressure on the people, put the pressure on my word. So I started to do that and with knees knocking. You know what I mean? Knees knocking, put the pressure on the word. And this is what Jesus is really saying to us in these texts. Put the pressure on God's word. I am more than able. Nothing's impossible with me. And the Bible says also that nothing's impossible to those who believe. Now, that's not believing anything, but believing what the word says. If you can find it in the scriptures as a promise, you can believe for it. No, it'll take a little time for it to get down in your spirit. It's not good enough just to believe it in your head. You've got to believe it down in here so that you actually know that you know. So having the wrong confession is an enemy of healing. Number three, hope is never faith. Hope is never faith. Many people make the mistake Hope for faith. Hope is expectancy. Hope is in the future. Faith is now. Hebrews 11.1. 1. Now faith is, or faith is now. The assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. So I may be hoping for it in the future, but I already have it. Before I see it, before it's manifested, it's already mine by faith. It's a conviction that I have what I'm believing for. Hope is vigorous. Hope is full of enthusiasm, but never possesses anything. Hope is down there. Faith is now. Faith is a possessor. Faith is of the heart. Hope, for instance, like the second coming. We all hope. That the second coming of Christ is a hope. Now, now that hope does something, no doubt. Why don't you turn with me to First John, John in your Bibles? This is not in your text. First John, chapter something. First John. Uh, So in 1 John 1 and 2, it's talking about the second coming. Verse 3, And everyone who has this hope in him purifies himself just as he is pure. The hope of the second coming makes us want to live right. We want to be living right when Jesus comes. Now, I can remember thinking, I don't want Jesus to come. I wanted to find a wife first. Remember that. Don't come until I have a wife and some kids. Then you can come, Jesus. 
And then I had to work through, I can remember working through a, as, a, as a theological student, working through all of these nutty things that come in the, over the airwaves, you know, about when Jesus, Jesus is coming in September 14th because everything is aligning, the moon, the sun, the stars, everything is, all of the things, and Jesus is coming. The Bible says no man knows the day or the hour. That means if somebody comes up with an idea when Jesus is coming, you can be sure he's not coming that day because nobody knows. Now, somebody may hit it by luck sometime. But I had to work through the, all, this, all this stuff about the second coming, which is an aside, has nothing to do with healing, but I thought I'd tell you that. Hope does something. Mansions, in Luke chapter 6, talks about mansions. A rewards, even. This is a hope. 2 Timothy 4.8 why do you turn there? Turn to 2 Timothy. It's not in your notes. 2 Timothy 4.8. Timothy 4.8. Finally, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness which the Lord, the righteous judge, will give me on that day, and not to me only, but also to those who love his appearing. There's going to be a reward. I don't know if a crown is something you put on your head or some kind of a, a reward for this, but the crown of righteousness is a hope. Whatever that is, it's a hope. But you do not hope for something you already have. Are you listening? You don't hope for something you already have. By the stripes of Jesus, you are healed. Even if it's not yet manifested, you have it in your spirit. It's coming, it's going to work out into your flesh. You hope for other things. Uh, you can look up the, uh, and you put this down, Romans 5 5. <clears throat> And you can look up something about hope. So hope is okay. Hope is good. But it's not faith. Faith says, I am healed. Hope says, I will be healed. I hope I will be healed. Faith says, I am healed. Faith says, I, I, I'm, I'm confessing Mark eleven twenty four. Whatsoever things you desire, when you pray, believe that you receive them. And then you'll have it. Believe you receive healing in your spirit. And then it will be manifested out there. When? Next week, maybe? Four months from now, what does it matter? Uh, the fourth thing that's an enemy of healing is praying for faith. Praying for faith. Never do that. Because Romans 12.3 says this. For by grace given to me. I say to everyone. Is it on the screen behind me? Yeah. For by grace given to me. I say to everyone among you. Not to think of himself more highly. Than he ought to think. Now notice. Before I go on. Notice. It doesn't say you shouldn't think highly of yourself. It just says, don't think more highly than you ought to. 
but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. Every Christian has been given a measure of faith. Therefore, never pray for it. Never ask God for it. What you need to do is grow your faith. 2 Thessalonians 1.3 We ought always to give thanks to God for your brothers as is right because your faith is growing abundantly and the love of every one of you for one another is increasing. And how does faith come? How does faith grow? So then faith comes by hearing and hearing and hearing and hearing the word of God or the word of Christ. Praying for faith would be the same thing as saying this. Praying for faith would be the same thing as saying, Lord, help me be convinced that you meant what you said in Romans 12.3. The measure of faith assigned to everybody. What you're saying if you're praying for faith is, I don't, I don't believe I have any. Now, you may not have used it. You may not think you have any, but you have or like saying, let me be convinced that Romans ten seventeen doesn't mean what it says. You have to be convinced that God's word is true. Yet you actually have it. You actually have faith. Depending on others' faith can be a problem. Now you can depend on somebody's faith in the prayer of agreement. You know, if two of you agree is touching anything on earth, it shall be done unto anything else you ask it shall be done so you can depend in that case but you make sure you have to make sure that when you're praying with somebody and asking them a prayer of agreement now it's the prayer of agreement don't go up to somebody and say agree with me this and that and the other no it's a prayer you pray together with this person so you pray you have to make sure that the person is a person, a woman, a man or woman of faith. You've looked at their lives. You recognize that they're people of faith. You have to make sure that the person is not just a person that is sympathetic with your situation. Oh, I know. I was really, I'm sorry. That they actually have faith to believe that God will correct that situation. Most of the time, I have to be honest with you, most of the time, if I pray a prayer of faith, if I need somebody to pray with me, I ask my wife. Because I've seen my wife's life over the years. I know she's a woman of faith. So I pray that prayer with her. Or I've prayed, I've prayed, I've prayed that prayer with other ministers, for example, who I've watched their lives. I've prayed that prayer with other members of the congregation who I've watched their lives. I know they're people of faith. So you have to make sure that the person you're having the prayer with as a person of faith. Otherwise, it's not going to work. Now, the next two issues are very important. You cannot come to God with a sense of unworthiness. You cannot come to God with a sense of unworthiness. You know, like you're just sure that God won't heal you. I, I, it's a comical story. 
a minister is, uh, he prays for this one lady. She probably comes to church once a year and she's got children. But anytime the children are sick, she phones the church and asks the pastor to come pray. She probably, she, the pastor said she, she gives about once a year to the church, comes about once a year. But she says, I want you to come and pray for the sick because I know God wants these little kids well. I know he doesn't want them sick. And he says, okay, I'll be there such and such a time. And she meets them halfway, sometimes halfway in the street. She meets them. She stands on the porch waiting for the pastor to come. She says, I know that when you lay hands on them, they'll be healed. Just watch and see. So he goes in and prays for these kids. The fever, he, he said, the fever went down under my hand as I prayed for them. The next family is a family, Pentecostal church, a family that's one of the deacons, you know, one of the stalwarts of the congregation. They call and say, um, would you come and pray for the kids? They're sick. We never really get anything anyway, but we just thought we'd ask you to come. So he goes, he goes and he knocks on the door. Nobody comes to the door. He knocks again. Finally, somebody comes and opens the door. Oh, it's you. Oh, come on. Come on in. We never get anything, but you might as well try and pray and everything. He said, you go in there and lay hands on the kids. It's like laying hands on a doorknob. Nothing's happening. And he said, it was the attitude of the heart. It was faith, simple faith in God. The ones that should have, and he was sure, he, when he first went, he was sure that that lady's kids, they weren't going to get anything. He was sure that the deacon's kids were going to get it, just the opposite. They got nothing. They, were, they had a sense of unworthiness. We, we're, see, I'm just not the best Christian. I'm a Christian, but I'm not the best Christian. I don't read my Bible enough. Well, that's, that's probably true of all of us. All that may be true, but your worthiness to receive healing from Jesus is not depending on your worthiness, what you do or don't do. Your worthiness comes from being in Christ. Have you all got that? Do you ever notice that you make mistakes on a regular basis? Do you ever notice that? Now, you don't want to. But if God was going to deal with us based upon perfection, no point of us showing up tonight. Your worthiness is not based upon your faithfulness. Your worthiness is not based upon what you do, how many books of the Bible you read, or whether you know them off by heart. Your worthiness is only in Christ. You are worthy in Christ. 2 Corinthians 5.21 For our sake he made him to be sin, who knew no sin, that in him we might become the righteous of God. Our righteousness is based upon being in Christ. So we have the right to come to the throne of grace and find grace to help in time of need. Why? Because we're in Christ. Now, the second real problem 
is a sense of worthiness or self-righteousness. You know, I can come to Christ because I'm a faithful member. I come to church every Sunday. I come for healing because I tithe. I come for healing because I give offerings. I come for healing because uh, I'm always there on time. That would leave most of you out. (laughs) I just couldn't bring myself not to say that. Now Esther says, that's a demonstration of meanness. She'll tell me that in the car. A demonstration of unworthiness. A sense of worthiness. I can't come to God with my faithfulness or my boasting in my own spirituality as deserving healing. Ephesians 2, 8 to 10. For by grace, unmerited favor, that's what grace is in its basic meaning, unmerited favor, amongst other things. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is a gift of God, not a result of works so that no one can boast. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God has prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Let's look up together Romans 4.16. If you got it, say, I got it. Therefore, it is of faith that it might be according to grace, so that the promise might be sure to all the seed, not only to those who are of the law, but also to those who are of the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. Righteousness is a gift given to us by God, and we receive it. By faith. You talk about worthiness. God heals sinners. Remember I told you about praying for that bank manager? God healed him. You know, like, I'm praying for him, you know? And he said, said, damn, I feel better. I love when God does that stuff. I really just do. But if most Christians were in that meeting, in that bank manager's office that time, they'd think, why did God do that? Well, why did, he, why did he save Paul on the road to Damascus? Because he was uh, an appointed man to bring the gospel. God knew he could use the mind, the intellect, and the drive of this man to delineate and bring the gospel so that he'd be able to write it down using using, using Paul's erudition anointed by the Spirit to write the book of Romans. The book of Romans is like the the diamond on the ring of your finger. It is such a wonderful book to, to write 
First and Second Corinthians and Galatians and Ephesians and Philippians and Colossians to write down. So God needed him. God can do what he wants. Generally speaking, though, he does things according to the word. I think I'm going to break there. I was going to talk to you about Paul's thorn in the flesh. I'll maybe talk a little bit about it. And then um, we will uh, pray for people. This is our last night. We all back. Okay, let me just talk about Paul's thorn in the flesh just a little bit. Paul's thorn in the flesh is used, it's a bugaboo in a lot of places. I went to a Pentecostal Bible school. I went to, did a bachelor's degree at University of Western Ontario at the Anglican College. Did a master's degree in, in the Presbyterian Church. Worked on a doctorate at McMaster in the Department of Religion. And in every one of those places, Paul's thorn in the flesh is a thorn in their flesh. <laughs> it's an amazing thing. And so the issue becomes, as, as they read this, well, we'll read it in a second. The issue becomes, because not everybody's healed, it must mean that God doesn't want everybody healed. That's the way they flow with their logic. And I, I sort of had that in my mind for many years, except all of a sudden the thought came to me, well, not everybody is saved either. That doesn't mean God doesn't want them saved. So then I started to rethink this, and so the rethinking is what you'll here tonight, 2 Corinthians 12, 7 to 10. Then after I rethought it, I found out there was a lot of people who were thinking the same way. So I wasn't, it's not originating with me. So to keep me from becoming conceited because of the suppressing greatness of the revelations. In other words, Paul received the revelation of redemption. He was, God gave him the interpretation of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, in other words. What Jesus did, what, was he, what did he accomplish, and was able to write it down by the help of the Holy Spirit. Because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, a thorn was given me in the flesh. Now here's the thorn. A messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from becoming conceited. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weakness, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then I am constant, I'm content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Now here's the commentaries, here's many commentaries that is written about this text. 
that Paul did not get this disease by infection, but that Jesus gave it to him, God gave it to him. Paul did not want to be sick, so he prayed to the Lord three times and received no answer of healing. This is the interpretation. The answer he got from the Lord was, my grace is sufficient for you. In other words, you can just go ahead and go through it. It's actually better to be sick than well because it's God's will for him to be sick. That God's divine power would operate through him better if he was sick than if he wasn't sick. So Paul says, if that's your will, Lord, this is all the interpretation of this text, then I will glory in my infirmity that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Now, some, some have suggested in the commentaries that you'll read that Paul had O-P-T-H-A-L-M-I-A, ophthalmia of the eyes, because of the scripture found in Galatians chapter 6, verse 11. Galatians chapter 6, verse 11 says, See with what large letters I am writing to you, with my own hand. In other words, the commentator said that he had to write in large letters because he couldn't see small letters due to his eye disease, due to Paul's thorn in the flesh. The problem is with that, that particular interpretation right there is the Greek word grammar has nothing to do with individual letters. It has to do with accumulation of pages. It is like a book or an epistle. What large book, what large epistle I write, what large letter I have written to you. It's like when I was uh, in, a, in between our first and second year of Bible school, Esther went up to um, what? Espanola to work in a church. She worked in the, the paper mill and then worked in a church as a deaconess. And she and I stayed in Toronto, worked for Coca-Cola. And she wrote me large letters. One letter was 39 pages. Can you believe it? Wherein she preached three messages to me about how I was to live that summer. <laughs> so the large letter had nothing to do with individual letters, individual like A, B, C but it has something to do with the size of the document and of the book. So, and besides that, before I give you the interpretation here, not once in the Bible, Old or New Testament, is the term thorn in the flesh ever used for sickness and disease. It's used as a figure of speech regarding personalities. For example, Numbers 3355. But if you do not drive out the inhabitants of the land from before you, then those of them whom you let remain shall be barbs in your eyes and thorns in your sides, and they shall trouble you in the land where you dwell. Joshua 23:13. Know for certain that the Lord your God will no longer drive out these nations before you, but they shall be a snare and a trap for you, a whip on your sides and thorns in your eyes, until you perish from the good ground that the Lord your God has given you. So you can't use thorns as sickness and disease. So let me go back to the text 
Surely, 2 Corinthians 12, 12, 7 to 10. So it came to me becoming conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations. A thorn was given to me. Now, we know what the thorn is now. The thorn is a messenger of Satan who tries to move Paul off of this whole business of redemption and revelation that he's bringing forward to all the young churches. The devil was working havoc in the church, causing all kinds of problems. The Gnosticism was a a big thing in those days where you had secret knowledge and Paul had to come against all these things. And so if the devil could keep him... uh, harassed and with his thoughts and with his mind on other things, he could keep him from writing these large letters to the churches. So, Paul said, three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. But he said to me, what? My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. In other words, I don't come, Paul says, I'm not to come to, these, to the devil with my own strength. I'm to come against the devil with the grace of God. I'm to come against the devil with the power of the Holy Spirit. I'm weak. I'm just a human being. But the power of God on me makes me strong in the Lord. He said, therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weakness. Yes, I'm weak. I, I'm only a, a human being. What I need is the power of God, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, I am content. I'm content to be a human being. I'm content to be be spiritually weak, because I'm going to rest and and rely on Christ and his power. So people can insult me, have hardships all they want and persecutions. For when I recognize my weakness, I am strong in the Lord. So that is the answer for that question. My power, my weakness, gives God the opportunity to overcome the devil, not by my power, but by God's power. And I can rely on Jesus because Acts 10.38 says what? Jesus went about doing good and healing all that were oppressed of the devil, for God was with him. So if Jesus is my Lord and Jesus is my partner, the devil can try to do everything he wants, but I'm going to win the battle against the devil because he is no match for God who's on the inside of me. And I think there are other scriptures that I gave there. Then the next little section, I have to watch the time here. The next little section is an illustration of how to receive healing. Remember the story in Numbers chapter 21 about the serpent, the serpent on the pole where all these people were bitten and, and dying and Jesus put the serpent on the pole and said, if you look at that, you'll live. And the word look means to constantly gaze at, to pay attention to, to give yourself over to looking. And Jesus applied this story to himself in John chapter 3, verses 14 and 15. 
And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. Now, in the story in Numbers, no one could receive healing except a condition of looking at the serpent on the pole. The looking from the Hebrew means to be occupied and influenced in what we're looking at. We're looking at Jesus. We're looking at the serpent on the pole. Today, what we look at is Jesus. We we keep looking at him. Romans chapter 4, verses 19 to 21. Here's Abraham. He did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead, since he was about 100 years old, or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb. So God said, you're going to have a baby. No unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God. But he grew strong in faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. He was able to make Sarah pregnant. Esther and I are not believing for this at all. We have no faith out for this. just want you to know. She told me the other day, don't have faith for this. She has no intentions. But Abraham said, okay, God, is this what you want? I'm going to believe. So this is, the, this is the activity of looking attentively and keeping your eyes upon the Lord and keeping your faith active. This is how you apply the word of God to your life. If you're sick tonight, if you have something wrong with you, Think about Jesus on the cross, according to 1 Peter 2.24, that took and bore your sicknesses and diseases so you wouldn't have to bear them. That by his stripes, 1 Peter says, you were healed. Well, if you were healed, you are healed. Isaiah 53, 4 and 5, by his stripes, you are healed. So you look at Jesus and you say, Lord Jesus, I believe in you. And when hands are laid on me, I believe that the healing anointing of the Holy Spirit will go into my spirit. As a matter of fact, Lord, I receive it in my spirit. I receive it in my spirit. Therefore, I am, I'm going to call myself the healed. In the face of contradictory circumstances, you may get hands laid on you tonight and the the symptoms will leave immediately. But in the face of contradictory circumstances, if those symptoms don't heal and if the symptoms don't manifest immediately, the healing has gone into your spirit and will be manifest in the days to come as you continue... Believing and don't give up. I remember praying for one guy one time. He told me this after. He said, when I prayed for him, the symptoms left immediately. I mean, they left immediately. And he said, it was, I, I, he said my back, I could move, I'd bend over, do everything couldn't do before. I mean, he walked up like this, you know, like one of these, he's just out of it. He said, I got back to my seat and you were praying for other people, and all of a sudden the pain started coming back. 
And I came back. He says to him, he said, well, I guess I didn't get it after all. And by the time he walked out of the church, he walked out like this, same as he went in. See, because the devil did a trick on him. You have the symptoms, but the healing is in your spirit first, and then it comes out. So remember, lay hands on the sick, Jesus said, and they shall recover. Most of the time, healing is gradual as your faith grows and believes. You keep the words of your mouth like 1 Peter 2.24, like Isaiah 53, that by his stripes I am the healed. In the face of contradictory circumstances, in the face of symptoms... You continue saying, by the stripes of Jesus, I am healed. Believing Matthew, believing Mark, believing the fact that when hands are laid, they said, go into all the world, lay hands on the sick, and they shall recover. I am recovering. So I'm going to, um, I'm going to pray for the sick now. And I'm going to start over in this section over here. Anybody wants me to pray. But what I want you all to do tonight for me is be in an attitude of prayer for each person that's being prayed for. And I want you to pray that, play that music pretty loud. Understand this, that I'm not the healer. Jesus is the healer. All I'm doing is obeying what Jesus said to do. He said, Lay hands on the sick, and they shall recover. This lady here gave me a testimony that she was prayed for on Sunday morning, and by what day? Monday or Tuesday, all the symptoms of her back problem was gone. Watch out if the symptoms come back, right? Keep your confession. This is is just like the Lord. He's the healer, folks. Jesus is the healer. So I'll be in an attitude of prayer, okay? So over in this section, who's wanting prayer? Thanks for listening. If you need prayer or would like to share how this message has impacted you, please email info at thecitychurch.ca. 